Welcome to episode 188 with my guest, marriage and family therapist, Erica Holmes, who's going to answer uh, your questions. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Pi. This episode is sponsored by Pi. Not food pie, the number pie. This episode is sponsored by PillPack, the pharmacy that delivers convenient pre-sorted meds right to your door. Um, you can support the Mental Illness Happy Hour just by checking out their website at pillpack.com slash happy hour. Might be the first pharmacy you'll actually like using. pillpack.com slash happy hour. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Although we got a professional on today. So uh, weigh her advice more heavily than you would weigh my uh, my advice. kind of hate the way I just delivered that last sentence. Felt like a newscaster. And now we're going to hear from Bob with the weather. Let's kick it off with a... Oh, uh, by the way, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. And uh, mentalpod is also the Twitter name that you can follow me at if, you, uh, if you're into that kind of thing. If you go for that kind of horse shit. This is an email that I got from a guy uh, who calls himself Nathan from St. Louis. And uh, he writes, it might seem sad that my go-to for consolation is usually within the anonymity of internet forums and the like, but there's a certain beauty in finding deep, albeit brief and limited connections with people who would otherwise have nothing to do with us because of ostensible differences. It's quite possible that the motherfucker that cut me off in that putrid Honda Civic with the crudely painted flames on the side and the bumper sticker that says some stupid fucking Walmart brand t-shirt style catchphrase is actually, in fact, a similarly insecure and terrified individual whose desperate search for meaning and satisfaction fogs his thinking. So I'd like to thank you for offering this resource to serotonin-starving individuals like myself so that we can be reassured that the same struggles we deal with are seen all around the world in many types of people who have found their own insights and coping strategies. That's such a great email. Thank you for that, Nathan. This is from the Struggle in the Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Oni. And about his love addiction, he writes, Yes, I need to be in love all the time with someone, or I feel crushed under the weight of being alone. It's about his anger issues. Yes, I have too many thoughts at once, and if someone adds another, I will scream at them. Snapshot from his life. The day after I thought my father was dying, my girlfriend at the time left me, knowing what I had just been through. I kicked a computer across the screen, uh, across a room. I cried for hours. I went and saw my father in the hospital. He asked what was wrong. I told him nothing. Well, you could have lied. You could have said, uh, well, it actually wouldn't have been a lie. You could have told the truth. You could have said, my computer broke. <laughs> then you wouldn't have had to address the, uh, the issue. Um, and I hope that that was a PC and not a Mac. Uh, this is same survey filled out by Sarah um, about her alcoholism. She writes, I can't admit it to myself. I pretend that my friends can't tell either. We all know I'm falling apart, though. Snapshot from her life. 
I've been using alcohol excessively since returning from the Peace Corps. I live with my boyfriend, and I'm always trying to hide it from him. We live on the ocean. Sometimes I walk down to the rocks to where he can't see me and quietly get wasted while he thinks I'm not at home. He went away for a night, and I stayed up all night drinking, watched the sunrise, and slept for almost two days straight, missing a good friend's birthday party. Sending you a hug and letting you know there is help out there. Um... This is from Adam about his depression. Uh, He writes, It feels like you're looking outside to see people playing and you can't get past the delusion that you can't go out because it's raining. Snapshot from his life, holding my son in the hospital and trying to act happy, like a functional happy parent, while ignoring the internal voice that tells me how worthless I am and how many ways I can fuck up his life with my own bullshit. A constant mental battle and struggle to survive that I can share with only a few close friends that understand it. Well, I'm grateful, or I'm happy to hear that you do have friends that you can share that with, because that's, that's a big burden to try to handle on your own. Um, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself belaboring the point. Uh, when I first read this survey, I, w- I pronounced it Bella Boring, the point. And then I realized, oh no, that's belaboring. Um, about her PTSD, she writes, due to being molested, then gaslighted, and this is my biggest trigger. Gaslighting triggers the fuck out of me. Why should it? I don't feel like analyzing it anymore. Can someone help me understand this sickness? And you know, my thought on that is... The real pain of being sexually abused, uh, especially by somebody who's, you know, in a position of authority uh, over you or who, who you're supposed to trust, is the, you know, them touching your body inappropriately is bad enough, but it's the tricking of you, I think, that really hurts us. And I think that's why um, when somebody gaslights you, that's why it's so triggering. You know, it would be the physical equivalent of them, uh, you know, of you being touched in the way that you were um, molested. So that's my that's my two cents on that. Uh, this is the same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself not a lot of fun. Fucking love him. Uh, his depression, clinical depression, feels like all of my school day bullies are following me invisibly and silently jeering at every single thing I do. I do until I'm so tired I have to lay down. Oh my God, do I relate to that. About his anxiety, I'm so afraid of interacting with you that it makes me angry at you. And about his MS, uh, he writes, let's go do this awesome thing we've been planning for months. Oh wait, my brain is fogging up. Vision in my right eye is blurring. My body is suddenly made of lead and I'm wearing one swim fin and a necktie that's too tight. Oh, I'm sending you a hug, buddy. Um, and he uh, suggestions to make the podcast better. He writes, have a guest with MS, please. Um, so if you um, have MS and you live in the Southern California area or uh, are going to be here, um, shoot me an email. Let me know. Um, my me- email is mentalpod at gmail.com. And um, I warn all my guests uh, before we record that I can't promise their episode is ever going to air. So I discourage people from traveling out here um, for the express purpose of, uh, of recording. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman across herself, UGH, U-G-H, and uh, uh, about her love addiction. She writes, I think about the scar on his neck like I used to think about a bottle of gin, that my lips wrapped around it in a warm bath, 
would be all I needed to soothe my weary bones for eternity. <coughs> it was like a little poem. And then this one is from a guy who calls himself Shame on My Jeans. <laughs> a lot of the names you guys come up with. About his perfectionism, he writes, Perfectionist personality traits make me want to know everything perfectly. In the end, I know very little. Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. Cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got to therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I'm here with Erica Holmes, who is a marriage and family therapist based here in uh, in Los Angeles. And you, I you contacted me through Twitter and asked if there was any way you could help out with the with the podcast. Right? Yeah. Yes. Um, you didn't necessarily want to record anything. You were just like you felt like you wanted to lend your services. Was it in light of the Robin Williams thing? That was one of the kind of impetus of it. Yeah. Um, there was so much out there and I'd heard of the podcast before and was in one of those kind of states of how can I help? There's so much need and so much energy going around. Like if there's any way to help out in some way um, and I'd like the podcast. So any way to be a part of that but I would test the waters. Well, uh, that's your mistake. So. <laughs> Noted. Uh, we met, we had coffee yesterday. We talked about some of the things that you do in your practice, some of the passions that you have. And I was like, well, let's record some stuff. I'll, I'll put some questions out there to uh, the listeners via uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, see if anybody has any questions that uh, that that you could address. So I am going to... Just go through some of the um, some of the questions. Yeah, let's do it. This is from Jennifer Clement Snyder, and she asks, "What type uh, of one-on-one -on -one therapy seems to be most effective for eating disorders? And thoughts on effectiveness of meetings for overeaters?" Thanks. So let's handle the first one. What type of one-on-one -on -one therapy seems to be most effective for eating disorders? The empirically based answer would be either CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. I'm a little biased because I do dialectical behavior therapy. At the end of the day, though, the overarching research for therapy in general is that no matter what kind of therapy you do, whether it be Freudian or whether it be short-term solution-focused or DBT, it's the relationship, having a trusting, caring, empathetic relationship where you can share and get your needs met with the therapist. That's the healing part of it. But the thing that helps most with CBT and DBT is um, skills-based. Yeah. Um, we want to make sure that get some behaviors reduce that aren't effective binging purging restricting 
um, overeating um, to give you a safe place to then move into the underlying issues. So those are the... Because it's never really about the addiction. It's about the overwhelming feelings that make the addiction seem like a good choice. Right. But the thing is, especially with any sort of mental illness, any trauma, your body and your mind are so interrelated. Um, We need the person to feel safe. And even if the person feels safe with another person, we need to make sure that their body feels safe. And if your body is in a state of crisis from overeating, undereating, purging, whatever it might be, um, the emotional stuff feels even more triggering and overwhelming um, and ends up compounding and making life feel even more unmanageable. So it's usually more effective to start to get some new coping skills in. Um, so then we have a safe place, mind, body, spirit to work on, on all the underlying issues. If they're addicted to binging or purging, um, you know, or restricting, is it difficult for them to go in and begin to change their habits around food immediately? Or are you talking about different habits of expressing themselves? Both. Because it seems to me like that would be the most difficult thing is getting a hold of the addiction first, like something else would need to happen. Um, Right. Right. So that's where we want to increase the other coping skills. Um, There is a really lovely in a book uh, by Rife and Rife, an eating disorder handbook. There's a really lovely analogy about the process of giving up an eating disorder. And it basically says, like, people who have eating disorders are on this plane and the plane goes into the ocean and they have a life raft and they're holding on to this life raft. And then someone comes in from the outside and tells them like, hey, we want you to come with us. There's something better out here. But in order to do that, you need to give up your life raft. And that dilemma, like this is the thing that's keeping me safe. Like no way, no way I'm going to give up that life raft. That's where at the point where treatment starts. And um, just kind of acknowledge that like you're not going to want to give away this security blanket this best friend like lover mother like everything you're not going to want to give that up immediately maybe let's give you some skills so that you don't need it quite so much we make you feel more confident swimming a little bit so that maybe you'll give up that life raft. Or maybe we give you another type of flotation device so maybe you can give up that life raft. And over time, um, we work on both sides of trying to have some exposure to the feelings that people are trying to um, decrease or avoid through eating disorder behaviors, um, have some exposure to that, so it is uncomfortable, um, but then also some other coping skills, too. So bring up stuff from the past, but not have it sure. completely centered on that and right. until some skills are in hand. Yeah. What are some of the skills that you, early on, that you try to begin to, to get them to utilize? Um, some of the first ones would be ways, uh, like, Oh, man, there's so many that need to happen all at once. That's why eating disorders are so tricky, but ways of self-soothing. But actually, before that, you need to start to notice how you're feeling. Get in touch with, like, okay, I'm a little bit anxious. Okay, how am I going to soothe myself? Maybe it is through the eating disorder, but maybe it's going to be through distracting with 
TV, you're calling a friend or going for a walk. So work on both identifying how you feel and then other ways to get your needs met, um, communicating what you need. But that takes a lot of work on getting in touch with how you feel. And that's something that not a lot of people have that skill of knowing. No one's ever taught or very few people are taught like this is how you feel. And when you feel this way, this is what you do with it. So we're left to like figure it out. And uh, people with eating disorders are pretty genius in that they found something that works. And it works until it doesn't is what I say. And I think the other thing that's so difficult is so many people with addictions were raised in some type of toxicity where they're maybe still in um, proximity with the people who sure. are toxic who try to negate their feelings, who try to tell them what they're feeling is wrong, you're being overdramatic, sure. um, you know, whatever. And so you have to begin trying to communicate with these people who are often master manipulators or guilters or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And so it's mm-hmm. like, we're going to teach you how to throw a football. And by the way, you're going into this college game this weekend. <laughs> Exactly. So there's a lot of at the same time trying to change some of that environment, work with the family if needed, if they're still living with the family, sometimes like create a new support system or decrease involvement with existing support system or family of origin. Um, That's where I what was the name of who wrote that question? Um, Jennifer. Jennifer mentioned, I think, about uh, meetings. Yes. So use huge believer. In. Yeah, I it's saved my great. Life. So having that support network and getting introduced even to the concept of like I can say what's going on, I can be completely genuine in myself, warts and all, and people aren't going to leave me or shame me or in whatever way that they were invalidated as a kid. And quite the opposite. Often they'll be moved to tears while you're sharing your story because they're hearing. Uh, their story come out of your mouth or vice versa and the hugs after meetings are that was the first life raft for me that was like oh my god this feels so soothing Uh it's so soothing you know I say sometimes that when you're living with depression or an addiction or some shame based thing that you're we're facing the world feels like walking naked out of an igloo, you know, yes. where when you wake up in the morning, just the thought of facing your day feels like that. To me, a support group is like somebody coming up with a, a, a parka that has been heated between electric blankets. Yes. You know, it's just so. Um, but not every meeting is like that. There are some meetings where I leave feeling kind of agitated because Maybe there was no recovery in there or somebody was hogging it or, you know, there was crosstalk where people were commenting and commenting negatively. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't go back to sure. to those particular meetings. Sure, which is part of the... I, on a different level of just empowerment and trusting your gut and intuition and being courageous to get your needs met, uh, like not staying in something that's toxic. Maybe when you were a kid, you had to stay in that toxic environment, but through recovery, whether it's meetings or whatever initial therapist you meet or friends that you're around or boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever, you as an adult get to choose who your support system is. And if you go to a meeting and it sucks, 
and it sometimes does. Sometimes people are just people are people, and they're not perfect. And it's not necessarily a reflection of the program. Right, right, and not even reflective of that meeting as a whole. Sometimes right. there's just a day, and people are just in a space. So, but being courageous and sticking with like I'm worth working on this. This I feel like this could work for me, so I'm going to persevere and find a place where this need can get met and not giving up. And the other thing I've discovered, too, as I began to heal was I would use a meeting that I wasn't crazy about um, to practice acceptance and surrender and to set boundaries. If there was a person in there who was a little bit toxic... Um, and they're like, hey, you know, uh, I got this thing, you know, this this weekend or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, can you come see me do this thing? Uh, I would just say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, appreciate the invite, but I'm not going to be able to do that. And it was like, that was good practice. That was like training wheels to be yep. able to to do that in other instances. And um, and to just close my eyes. There, were, I, I was at a meeting on Wednesday night, and this person gets on my nerves. Mm-hmm. When they share, it's there's almost no recovery ever. It's just about it. Just it feels like bad group therapy to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is a chance for me to practice acceptance. And so I just closed my eyes, and I literally had to breathe deep the entire time that this person was sharing because the feelings were coming up. It was triggering because it reminded me of my mom. This person talked a mile a minute. And it was just, they were completely self-involved. And I felt rage mm-hmm. coming up. And I was like, yep. this is my issue. Yep. You know, this this person is not, they're not trying to piss anybody off. This is where they're at. Yep. Um, so that can also be, um, it, you got to decide, is this something that I need to, to leave right here? Or is this something I need to work through? Right. And that there's a learning curve on that. And that's going to change day to day with how big of a fuse you go you've got going into it some days that like bring it let's practice acceptance and patience and some days it's like you know what i'm i'm spent i didn't sleep last night like i've been running around crazy just had a fight with somebody this is not my day to practice and be kind to yourself and meet yourself where you're at and peace out you can be kind and it doesn't mean that it's over and you'll never come back or that you're wrong or bad like you're allowed to have boundaries and those are allowed to not be super rigid and like I always stay or I always leave right it's allowed to be fluid I like to do when I'm going to leave a meeting is I bring a microphone and then like showtime at the Apollo I just drop it in the middle of the room (laughs) and go I'm out I'm out (laughs) namaste bitches (laughs) (laughs) um so you're you're uh you have positive uh Thoughts on effectiveness of meetings for for overeaters? Yes. uh, Again, dependent on like uh, the amount of recovery in that meeting, but there are tons of meetings that have some really good recovery in there. So don't give up the baby with the bathwater kind of thing. And you're uh, referring to 12-step meetings as well as as other non-12-step meetings? Sure. Okay, great. Yeah, so I'm all about whatever works. And what works for one person is not necessarily going to work for another person, but try everything. Like, it, just go for it. Throw spaghetti against the wall and Absolutely. see what sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, this one comes from Ashley Zaya? Zayas. 
and she asks, how can you talk to someone who has an eating disorder more than the usual come from a caring and loving place? So I'm assuming that Ashley has a friend or a loved one that has an eating disorder. Uh, Yeah. Um, It's tricky and painful to be around anyone with an eating disorder. They're obviously suffering a lot. And it's a really delicate balance of not saying nothing and enabling it versus trying to fix it. Um, And they find that it's different for every person. But talking directly about weight in particular, like, oh, you, like lost so much weight or have you been eating or being the food police of any sort does not help. Um, Mostly it is through caring for someone and sometimes caring for someone means you have to set some boundaries, but caring for someone to help them find their own kind of motivation to get help. Um, But I would focus if you're going to talk to somebody, um, Focus on things you like about them. Like if you're going to talk about them, don't talk about them as an object or their body. Talk about them as a person. Treat them as a person. Like they're not the eating disorder. They're still a person in there. And the more you never know what someone's going to take in. And maybe that one comment where you treated them as a real person is going to sink in and make them a little bit more open to getting help and to healing. So would it be fair to say something like, you know, how you feeling these days? What's going on emotionally with Absolutely. you? Oh, you know, I'm, I just want you to know I'm here for you. I love you. And, um, you know, uh, feel free to share anything that that you want uh, Absolutely. with me. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not here to judge you. I'm mm-hmm. here because I love you. Yeah. And in that space of being... And then drop the mic and say, I'm out, uh, bitches. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's <laughs> Just leave them with that. Yeah. Let it simmer for a bit. But yeah, just treat them like a, a regular person that they are. Not like a normal person. They are a normal person. They yeah. just happen to have this set of behaviors that is just at very best ineffective, if not potentially deadly with eating disorders. So care about them, but you don't need to fix it. Yes, you don't need that's to. a really important thing. Yeah, it can drive that person even further away. Right. Um, Good luck, one, Ashley. <laughs> um, this one comes from Deborah Mogherini. I think I'm pronouncing that uh, right. She says, "Why are eating disorder treatment centers center success rates so low? Why do these centers insist on feeding patients fried foods and other unhealthy, high calorie meals?" Uh, as a recovering anorexic bulimic, I understand they need to put on weight, but why don't centers focus on organic, healthy, high-calorie meals? So, um, uh, the was that the rest of the questions there? Pretty much. You know, let's let's. Want to start there? Yeah. Uh, so, why are the success rates low? Let's handle that one first. Success rates are low because it's such a tricky disease to work with. There's magic that happens with a skilled clinical team. And and I say team because with eating disorders, you need to have a therapist, psychiatrist, dietitian, um, and and maybe some other people as well in there. Um, a, A team along with a motivated, at least marginally motivated, um, 
client. So that when that happens, there's magic and there's hope. Um, if there's one of those pieces isn't there, there, there is something to be said of it's, it, it's not necessarily your fault. If you have an eating disorder, there's a zillion ways where, why it happened, where it came from, why it was genius for you to decide to pick up that set of behaviors. And at the same time, it's your responsibility, um, to as an adult to get help and that takes a lot of work and that's a shitty place a lot of times it's easier to and and legitimate to blame people and be angry um and there is something to be said for those behaviors are the fancy word is egocentric, but it means that they work and you like it uh, there's a lot of reinforcement for binging binging and purging um, exercise addiction, anorexia, there's a lot culturally, internally, there's a lot of reinforcement for it. It, it works. So it's... Nobody tells you after, you know, a three-week bender, uh, you look great. Right? <laughs> that, no, but after uh, going on just a, a complete calorie restriction, like I'm, I'm just going on hunger strike, you're going to get a lot of compliments. People are going to notice. And that attention, there's that nothing, there's no bad attention. It it works. Um, so there's a reason why people stick with it. Um, as much as it works, it doesn't work. But there's a reason why people stick with it. So it's... It's like a short-term game. I always say it's uh, like binging on candy. Yeah, your blood sugar gets up. But in the long run, you're going to get very, very sick from... Right. Going to candy when you're right. when you're tired. Yep. Yep. So it's a a tricky one and it's it's deadly. I mean at the end of the day that's not a a popular thing to talk about, but it's deadly. Uh anorexia being one of the most deadly um mental illnesses out there. Um so that's part of why there's a low success rate is just the mortality rate of it. And the just the uh insidiousness of addiction yeah. that's yeah. you know there's also a certain grace from the universe that why some people mm -hmm. um are able to um look to keep their addiction at bay and others just seem caught in a cycle of uh relapse um right and if we go with like a disease model and and i bring up the comparison to cancer it's different but there's a comparison there of no one says you didn't try hard enough at beating cancer like uh, they don't really say that, but there is, with any sort of mental illness, addiction, there is a genetic component to it and a, a chemical, physiological component of it that is not about like a matter of willingness Will or weakness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it's not fair for for some reason there is a, a cultural stigma of well, just get over it. Or like, if you oh, wanted it bad so enough, angry. oh, it, yeah. it makes my skin crawl. I want to punch somebody in the face. It sucks that there's just such a, a lack of information and so much stigma and judgment around any mental illness or addiction. It's sad. Um, and what about the giving them uh, at the at the center is one of the things she asked is... 
why do they give you the high calorie fried foods and stuff like that instead of a high calorie organic healthy meals that personally i am not in love with that i understand the rationale behind it um there is the thing of exposure um, users, there's uh, almost to the level of phobia, if not full phobia, of certain foods. And by avoiding those foods, your life gets really small, pun intended. But um, so you need to have some exposure so that you can live your life and not live in fear of those foods. At the same time, um, I don't think it's super effective to go from one extreme of unhealthy eating to a different type of unhealthy eating in the name of breaking phobia. So I don't think that in order to be recovered, you need to be eating French fries all the time. However, to have some flexibility and spontaneity in life, which is part of recovery from an eating disorder. Letting go of control. Yeah, yeah. You you may be out with a friend and they want to go to fast food like once in a blue moon. And for you to have the ability to say yes or no just based on preference not based on fear but based on preference and that sometimes involves having some exposure to those foods this question comes from uh her full name is quirky kirsten hacker miller i love that (laughs) and she writes what is what is the recovery rate for ptsd sufferers at 5, 10, and 15-plus years. Um, I assume she's talking about after the event. Um, and then she asks, what, if any, adjunct uh, therapies can assist in the process of processing? So The recovery rate. Recovery rate, I would be lying if I spat out a number right now. That's something that would be available in the DSM, or I'm sure online they've got rates of what that would look like um no need for me to bullshit anybody okay um but there is there it's something that you can get over um and in terms of ways to get over that talk therapy emdr uh, emdr is one of them which stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing well Re- rewiring your brain i did some of it and uh, i could feel a difference i didn't do it that long i know other people who've had profound effects yes. uh, from from doing it yeah and again this one there's a lot of different options and it's finding one where it works and you find someone that you like who does this modality um that works so there's uh emdr somatic uh Somatic therapy, somatic which is kind of touch based. It's based uh, trauma. When trauma happens, it get the trauma gets locked in your body. Basically, your body isn't able to process what's going on. You have that fight, flight, or freeze, and your body just can't tolerate, can't process what's happening. So, this trauma gets locked in your body. And somatic experiencing is a way to unlock your body. It involves a lot of movement, um, like noticing like here's how I the sensation I feel in my hand or here's the impulse that my hand has it wants to clench it wants to move forward it wants to move backwards and putting some mindfulness to that um to help let some of that trauma being aware of 
the tension in your body. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine meditation helps quite a bit. Absolutely. There is a lot of research going on with meditation. A lot of um, troops coming back are using mindfulness to help with PTSD. Stay in the present moment. Yep. Yep. Be able to stop um, panic attacks, flashbacks, dissociation by being grounded in the moment. Those are all really helpful. Neurofeedback, which I do, um, can be really helpful. There's a protocol called Alpha Theta, which helps. I've done it. Yeah. yeah. It's it's pretty, pretty great. Yeah. Uh, it helps release and reprocess some of those memories or experiences. Um, so there's a lot of, of ways. And there is something you've said for time. Time helps with those things. Um, and some exposure work, too. You could do some CBT-based exposure work if you, based on trauma, have been ex- uh, avoiding people or situations, um, places. You can gradually start to expose yourself to those places, notice that you're safe, um, so that you break that association that this equals danger. Mm-hmm. So there's there's hope for it. This question comes from uh, Val Chacon, and she writes, uh, how does borderline personality dissipate? What does that look like and why? How does it dissipate? So borderline personality uh, tends to, it's classified by a bunch of behavioral traits. Um so the dissipating looks like you identify those ineffective behaviors, um, usually centering around interpersonal relationships or self-harm behaviors. Um, identify those behaviors, and similar to what I was saying with the eating disorder, you um, replace those with more effective ways of interacting with people, interacting with yourself. Despite Ident- the feelings. Despite the feelings, that's the that's the thing. What's so hard with borderline personality disorder is the feelings on a scale from one to ten or fifteen. Yes, and uh, there's the unfortunate thing of they go from zero to sixty faster than the average person. Um, they it takes a long time to go back to baseline. Like, whereas one person might have anger and it shoots up to a 10, and then in five minutes they're feeling a little bit better. Maybe it's down to a six. person who has a borderline personality disorder might be, it might shoot to a 10 and stay at a 10 for days. Mm. And wow. that's intolerable. How intolerable is that to walk around at, at a 10 all the time? So then what do you do? Either you explode or implode. I can't hold on to that much energy. It's basic physics. I can't hold on to that. So I got to do something with it. And that Self-harm explodes or, or implodes. Yeah. yeah. So I fight sense. with someone or I hurt myself. And that, again, it's that thing of it works. People do things. People aren't crazy. Anyone with borderline personality disorder is not crazy. They have found ways to manage this just emotional shitstorm that goes on inside of them, which would be like a lot of suffering to walk around unmanaged. So they find ways to manage that. And unfortunately, those it's my favorite thing that works till it doesn't. Um, and people do the best they can. And there's a point where you, you got to do something different. It just doesn't work. So then that's where they come in. 
uh, for treatment one way or another, and we work on coping skills and ways to interact with people, ways to practice mindfulness, to be aware of those emotions and not be so emotion-driven. And having that space through mindfulness, creating a space where I can have anger and be effective, can have anger and not fuck up my life, have anger and not make it worse. Um, Because usually what the worst thing is is while maybe exploding or imploding might make the anger go down in the short term, I add shame on top of it. So maybe my anger is a little bit lower, but now I've got just the shame that I'm sitting in, and that's intolerable. And then the cycle starts all over again, and you're walking through life just a raw nerve. Um, like your thing, uh, that naked person out of a igloo, raw and exposed and vulnerable and reactive. So a lot of mindfulness helps to slow things down, give you that split second to hit pause. That's the first skill I like to teach people is hitting the big pause button. Um, slow down, think for a second, um, and then kind of move forward from there. I don't think I've ever witnessed my mom taking a deep breath and pausing before she says something it's such a shame i didn't either but it's such a shame like how genius would it be how many like world fucking world problems would we solve if people from uh, like your next door neighbor to the president could hit pause how genius would that be and no one teaches you that like, we talk all the time at work about, like, shouldn't they teach DBT skills at, at school? Like, if you learned this in, in kindergarten, yeah. oh, my gosh. Like, it would change so much because no one teaches you that. But then people, because they weren't taught, um, go around thinking that there's something wrong with them or that they're broken because they don't know how to deal with what's going on inside of them. And, and it's not that. It's just no one taught you. you know, I, I like to say that you know, we think that we're so progressive, but really we're, we are in the middle of the dark ages uh, emotionally. There's, there is a mm-hmm. spiritual famine in this country that directly affects emotional illiteracy. And Absolutely. people just think that, uh, well, the answer to, to feeling safe and relaxed is to just be more financially successful sure. and to get more attention sure. and to get recognition and that that will fix me. And I, I had to experience that dead end and wanting to kill myself uh-huh. having these things that society tells me would uh-huh. fix me to realize I need to f- this clearly is, is, is not working. And hopefully if there's one thing that society maybe would take out of the Robin Williams suicide is is that exactly. From the outside, this charming, wealthy, successful, funny person who was loved by millions still committed suicide. That wasn't enough. And uh, there, yeah, there's just a, like you said, a famine there. And we need to start paying attention inwards. Uh, this comes from did you feel like you answered val's uh question how does it dissipate i hope so okay it's it takes a long time that's it didn't happen overnight it's not going to go away overnight or not even go away you're not going to manage it better Mm -hmm. overnight this comes from sean uh kispert and he asked he or she i'm not sure there's no picture um 
Do you think ultra-conservative religious upbringing can be a contributing factor to borderline personality disorder or eating disorders? Sure. I completely agree because um, invalidating is invalidating. Absolutely. And, and imposing your, you know, not allowing a child to explore and have independent thoughts is invalidating. Every bit is invalidating, in my opinion, as hitting them, um, molesting them, um, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm 100% on board. Like It's that thing where the environment and the child don't match up. They just aren't a good fit, and that, that happens. And that leads to invalidation, and that can be anywhere on the spectrum. You could have a child feel invalidated from an ultra-conservative Christian upbringing. You could have a child feel invalidated by like the ultra-super hippie liberal who has no rules, and they feel invalidated by not having any rules or just having free reign on everything. I've seen everywhere uh, over the spectrum. It's just that lack of attunement, lack of attachment, um, attention, care, all of that that can lead to invalidation. So it's not necessarily necessarily a religious or a political thing. It's just when the primary caregiver and the child aren't in sync. And like there's not a uh, moderation of structure. It's either completely rigid or, you know, you're on your own. There's no guidance and no consequences. Right. Yeah. Anything that's too one way or the other. Um, and not individualize that individual care and attention um, that can be traumatic. And it's that insidious thing of where there's no better or worse, but the trauma from daily invalidation. um, And lack of mirroring, right? Right, right. That attachment piece goes missing um, and has ripple effects all throughout life. Like if you're not attached with your parents or primary caregiver, your ability to attach to friends at school, to a partner later, to your own children later, all of that um, is impacted. And it's not hopeless, but you have to learn it a different way. Um, And not everyone gets to do that. We're going to take a pause right here and give some love to our sponsor, Pill Pack. And uh, they've been so good to us. Uh, they've supported a lot of our shows. And uh, I would love it, and they would love it if you supported them. Even just checking out their website, which is pillpack.com slash happy hour. And um, they are an online pharmacy, and they deliver meds or vitamins uh, pre-sorted right to your door. Uh, they sort them by the day and even the time that you need to take them. Uh, so there's no guessing, did I forget to take them today? Um, if you're going to travel, it's nice. You just tear off how many days uh, of packets that you need. You throw them in your suitcase. Um, or maybe you got one of, one of those little hobo uh, bandanas on a stick. Maybe that's how you travel. Um, but uh, they ship prescriptions to uh, 33 states and non-prescription to all 50. And here's the part that I think is great, is it's super easy to enroll. You just give them some basic information, and they take care of switching your prescriptions from your current pharmacy to them, and there's no lapse in coverage. So um, why why would you go stand in line at a pharmacy again when PillPack is around? And they have great customer service. So what more do you need? What more do you need? So uh, go check it out. And again, the website um, is pillpack.com slash happy hour. This comes from 
Sue Uh Hi, Sue. She's up there in Montana, and she works with uh, uh, troubled teens, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, I got a nice email from her. And she writes, I hear there are different kinds of neurofeedback treatment. True? True. So uh, the different types, there's more and less invasive, more or less um, like conscious that you need to be active. Um, so the one I do is called brain paint. It's pretty passive. Brain pain? Brain paint. Oh, paint. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully pretty painless. Okay. Um, brain paint. And you are connected to an EEG, which monitors your brain waves. And there's pictures and sounds that interact with your brain waves um, to keep them in a desired frequency. It's probably the easiest way. And it's reward-based. That no? one, not consciously, there's some where it's more like a video game. Where oh, that's, you're a, that's what I did. Yeah, where you're trying to um, modulate your brain waves to produce some exalt. There's one where you make a car go around a track. That's what I did. Yeah. yeah. And so there's that one. This one that I do, you just sit there and look at pretty pictures and hear different tones come through. Is that Alpha Theta? It does have alpha, theta. It also has beta and um, one called SMR, which is a lower frequency beta. Okay. Um, and just... Uh, Super nerdy. Uh, the, the main brain waves are alpha, beta, theta, and is there another one? Alpha, beta, beta, delta. Sleep. Delta, that's right. Gamma. Yeah. There's one in there, too. And they are all in a fraternity, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> they, At the end of neurofeedback, they have too much to drink. Yeah, toga party. And then they make fun of poor people. <laughs> uh, so what, what else about, uh, about neuro, neurofeedback? Um, and it's basically a way of, of they, correct me if I'm wrong, but here's what, when I, did neurofeedback and i'm not really quite done with it yet i have to go back in to have them remap my brain to see how effective it was uh-huh. and i've been putting off doing it uh because that's what i do with everything in my life um so it's working it, uh <laughs> <laughs> i am one of the toughest cases he's ever had he said he's never seen one like me where somebody didn't respond to like 40 treatments oh wow and uh, from my understanding of it is they do a brain map when you originally go in there they see what the predominant waves are you're producing in different areas of your brain and they make an assessment of this might be contributing to your depression or your impulsiveness and so what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to get your brain to produce more of this other brain wave or less of this other brain wave to help you with these issues and so you do these games that they think will help and then they remap your brain and see how it worked yeah basically that uh, you could do my job for me (laughs) sounds pretty good you should be my spokesman (laughs) that's what that's what i was told what am i missing um that's the that's the cliff's notes version of it you've got it um Things like depression, addiction, ADD, OCD, um, even things in terms of uh, like sleep disorders, autism can be a result of your brain either, like you said, producing too much or too little of a particular frequency. Um, so what we do is take a look at what your brain's doing and then we encourage it through reward system, whether it be pictures and sounds from mine or video games from yours, we encourage it to 
act more optimally. And and it's rewarded by tones or visual images because your brain is thirsty constantly for stimulus. Yeah, Correct. and it, it responds to, it just intrinsically responds to different tones, pictures, colors, shapes. Um, yours with uh, like the reward pleasure principle, like, yay, I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, it responds to that and wants to do more of it. Anything else on, on neurofeedback? Um, how uh, many, typically how many sessions? I've been told 30 is kind of where things begin to change for people. Yeah, so you're going to see within the first... It's it's about a half hour uh, to 40 minutes, a typical session? Correct. And uh, with this one, especially at the beginning, more is more. Um, It's like if you were going to the gym. You're going to see results if you go lift weights one time a week. That's fine. You're not going to do any damage. But if you go in two or three times a week, you're going to see results much quicker. You're going to have a lot more muscle memory. Your muscles are going to build faster. It's the same with your brain muscle. So at first, at least more is more. Um, Their sessions tend to be, I I block out an hour, but the actual um, protocols take in general 30 to 40 minutes. Within the first four to six, sleep starts to change a little bit. For better or for worse? Uh, For better. Being able to sleep through the night, sleep, or like fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, which sleep is so crucial to just well-being, body, mind, spirit. Uh, So with that starting to change, you start to just notice changes pretty pretty quickly they start to flow off of that by 30 or 40 you're gonna see some pretty um noticeable changes um if you're not me if it's not you right (laughs) some people it takes a little bit longer um some people it's just not maybe that's not your thing um and again it's that you do the best you can. You try all the modalities that you can and give it your best shot. And sometimes there's people that respond better or worse. Same with medications. Some people respond amazingly well to medications. Some people, eh, it doesn't make much of a difference. And there's a certain amount of trial and error. I mean, he yeah. tries everything with me. And we're not done because he's been very nice and he's offered. Uh, I've been going since the 30 sessions, he's mm-hmm. been giving me free sessions. So like the oh. last 20 have been free because he, he's he cares deeply about right. what he does. And he he wants to help me. Uh-huh. And he's also intellectually, this is like... You're a puzzle. I'm a puzzle to him. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, wants to, he wants to crack it. Yeah. Um, you both win then. I would I would like that. The one profound moment that I had and it really only lasted a day was I woke up from a nap and an episode of The Rifleman was on TV, which I I never care about old shows and I was like, "Yes, I'm going to watch an episode <laughs> of The Rifleman." And I watched the whole thing and I loved it. That's so great. And and then it was the next day, it was like that excitement for uh-huh. the little things kind of was was gone. Yeah. Um, let's go to another question. Rumination disorder patients, have you found this to be easily treated in the same way one would treat a bulimic or anorexic, or have you found that digging deeper via CBT? Rumination disorder? I wonder if they're, if they're referring to... Like uh, ruminating in the mind? 
I believe so. Are that are they referring to kind of like OCD or borderline personality disorder? I mean, it could be. I'll I'll treat it as if that's what it is. Uh, ruminating, like obsessive thinking. Um, so repeat the second part. Is it related uh, to? Can they be as easily treated in the same way one would treat a bulimic or anorexic? I mean, easily. Yeah, I mean that's a. That's a <laughs> I don't I think this person. I don't think this person has an eating disorder. Uh, um, easily no, but treatable. Assuming that it is obsessive thinking, treatable. Yes. Um, a lot of mindfulness techniques would be used for that. And then a lot of looking um, at what the triggers are, mm-hmm. whether that's environmental triggers, thought triggers, body sensation triggers of what's uh, prompting them to ruminate. And then we uh, look at ways around that. Easy. <laughs> My friend Mike Siegel uh, asks... Uh, I play poker with him uh, once a month with a group of comedians. And he asks, uh, why do you refuse to fold when you know you've got a shit hand? (laughs) (laughs) And I wrote, uh, Mike, because I'm dumb and don't pay attention. (laughs) Probably has something to do with your mother. (laughs) (laughs) What doesn't, in my mind, have to do with my uh, my mother? I feel bad sometimes talking about her so much. Um, I give uh, mine so much shit. Do you? (laughs) Yes. Um, Oh, shoot. I can't see any more questions on this because uh, there's no Wi-Fi in here. Oh, no. Um, Let's see if there's some from Twitter. This is an interesting one by Larry Sirk, and he asked, does thyroid medicine and speed exacerbate the symptoms of borderline personality disorder? Oh, jeez. Well, speed, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I can't think that it wouldn't hurt everything. Mm -hmm. Speed's no good. Um, That's going to really make... You have an uphill battle, and depending on the function of your thyroid, extra thyroid medicine is going to speed you up, potentially make you more irritable and agitated, um, and someone who has a difficult time regulating emotions anyway, uh, that's just adding fuel to the fire. So I can't ever say anyone's going to recommend speed and thyroid medicine. Even for ADHD? Uh, you think that's what they're talking about? I, I took I it as know. a... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I This is clearly about uh, borderline personality disorder, but I know sometimes they give uh, stimulants to people with... Uh, is it ADHD? Yeah, that, okay. and assuming that uh, you meet criteria, it's one of those ones of if it works, it works. Um, people who it's appropriate for feel calmer. So then, yes, that would make your life easier if you were taking a stimulant. If you don't have the whatever uh, chemical brain situation that would make stimulants effective, um, it's going to make your life more difficult. This person asked, Amy Whipple asked, uh, anything hopeful for borderline personality disorder? And, uh, And you wrote, hope, yes, easy, no. Skills, support, and willingness to make change possible. Yes. Yeah. Anything you'd like to add? Amy last night. Um, There's a lot of hope. I I think one of the, I like, people feel ready, willing, and able to change. One way that, that helps that is knowing that other people have gone through and come out on the other side. That's where meetings are helpful. That's where therapy is helpful. That's where 
documentaries and like human interest pieces can be really helpful. And it was really great. Um, I think last year, uh, Marsha Linehan, who created DBT, um, came which, out of the closet, which, basically. Yeah, which stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy. Right, which is the predominant... Uh, treatment for people with borderline personality. Um, and she came out and said that she had borderline personality. and that Had she, or has? Which is the correct verbiage. That's so, I feel like jury's still out on that one, mm. depending on the person, okay. um, what you want to say. So she had been institutionalized. She was in a padded cell. She, like, was banging her head up against the wall in a padded cell, in an institution after trying to kill herself. And she went on to revolutionize treatment for people with who are suffering from the same thing that she had. So hope, absolutely. Read the piece in the New York Times on Marsha Linehan. Um, it's absolutely genius. And and the great thing about it, too... It's a good YouTube video, by the way, on a borderline personality disorder that where she is one of the people weighing in on it. And yes. It's, illuminating to anybody who wants to know more about the disorder and by the way it's also the dsm now calls it uh emotional dysregulation disorder they're phasing out calling it that but whatever yeah Uh, it's semantics on on that one at this point people aren't their diagnosis so whatever we want to call it whatever the it, it changes it's a cluster of behaviors and helps get treatment end of story it's not who you are um, but there's also been, I can't think of them offhand, but there's also been some celebrities who have come out saying that they have BPD. Borderline. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, uh, and bipolar people, more people have been coming out bipolar. Yeah. Catherine Zeta Jones, uh, mm-hmm. uh, came out as having uh, bipolar disorder. Um, uh, Brandon Marshall, the football player, mm-hmm. uh, came out as having a borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's there's people out there, and it's great that people are putting themselves out there and giving a face to it to kind of decrease some of the stigma um, that can come with it's such a heavy diagnosis. Um, but there's some hope around it. That's it for our questions. Is there anything that you'd like to t- to talk about? Um... I think I'm pretty pretty good right now i'm just happy and honored to have been there and hope that i helped in in some way well i think your um responses to these questions uh, were were fantastic and so uh wonderfully concise and accessible um it's um i just wanted to clap like when you started just uh giving concrete answers for help because I know it's one of the things that people like listening to the podcast because it helps them feel less alone but sometimes we can skip over what it is that helped these these people because sometimes I forget to ask that Um, sometimes just time has been the thing that that, that helped some people with less severe things Um, and sometimes I think I'm afraid of the show becoming too dry and mm-hmm. too, um, yeah, too textbooky, and so I think it's important to have uh, a show once in a while that is um, that is not somebody's story, 
Mm-hmm. Rather, it's just kind of uh, tips. Yeah, and I thought it was uh, genius, too, looking through the surveys. There is that coping skills one. It's not quite as sexy as the other. Uh, what has helped you? Yeah. Or what has helped you survey? Yeah. yeah. The, there, I read through, and some people had some excellent insights. I want them to come lead group for me. They had really good ideas for coping skills to use. So uh, I would suggest looking through that if you're going to be browsing through surveys, any of the listeners out there. Good. Thank you. Thank you for re- recommending that. Yeah. Erica Holmes, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, coming and helping out. Yeah, thank you. If people want to get a hold of you, they can follow you on Twitter at uh, Erica Holmes MFT. And Erica is E R I K A H O L M E S. Um, Erica Holmes MFT uh, on Twitter. And is there another way that they can get a hold of you? Uh, there's a. Uh, I have a website, Erica MFT, E-R-I-K-A-M-F-T dot com. That's got all my contact info on there, a little bit more about me, what I do, where I'm located, all that fun stuff. Okay. And are you taking on uh, clients? In limited amounts, yes. Okay. I know one of the things we talked about yesterday um, was that you enjoy how balanced your life feels, that you're able to occasionally take a day off and go to the beach, but your life feels full but not overwhelming. Yeah, I think for uh, people in the helping profession, uh, you got to have something to give in order to give, and I need to refuel from time to time, and so I like to keep things balanced that way, refuel at the beach. You're walking the walk. Yep. Peace out, bitch. <laughs> Namaste, bitches. <laughs> Thanks, Erica. Yep. Well, I hope you guys got as much out of that uh, episode as as I did. Um, I always love learning new things, getting getting new insights. Um, I want to mention, before I read uh, some surveys and emails, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support the show financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a, a recurring monthly donation. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month, and uh, it's super easy to to do it. And um, once you fill it out, you don't have to touch it or change it unless you decide you want to cancel it or your credit card expires. Um, And it means the world to me. It helps keep the show on uh, sound financial footing. And um, yeah, there you have it. You can also support the show uh, by shopping through our Amazon search portal. If you're going to buy something from Amazon, just enter through the little search box on our homepage, right-hand side, about halfway down. Make sure your ad blocker is uh, is not on. Otherwise, it might not show up. And um, you can also buy T-shirts uh, at our through our site. Um, not at Amazon, but uh, T-shirts and Mental Illness Happy Hour T-shirts and coffee mugs. You'll see the link there. And you could support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice, giving us a good rating, or spreading the word through social media. All those things help greatly. Let's get to some stuff. This is, and by the way, uh, I believe the last episode I was kind of sharing that I've been feeling numb lately, and um, possibly from playing a video game excessively, uh, Civilization Revolution 2 for iPad. And um, I've decided that what, apparently, what my life needs is more accomplishments uh, on the achievement list of Civilization Revolution 2. That 
I don't need to expand the podcast, and I don't need to try to contact, uh, for instance, Psychology Today to try to get an article written to, written to uh, bring more listeners. Nope. I need to check off all the silly little achievements that this game has. Um, and I feel oddly good doing it. I'm like, oh, okay. I just, wa- I just won uh, a domination battle uh, as the Americans with the... Uh, Oh, I don't even want to go into the details, but it it's like a warm little cocoon that I that I get into. It's it's so soothing and yet I know it's numbing me out. I know it's affecting my ability to feel and be present. And um I hope I get out of it soon, but it's better than a lot of other addictions uh I have engaged in in the past. Um I don't like it. Anyway, that's where I'm at. This is an email I got from uh, a guy who calls himself Michael. And he writes, um, Avid listener to the podcast, I have OCD and intrusive thoughts. I would like to talk with you someday about the long-term complications that have sprung out of OCD and how they've left me shy and fearful of sexuality. More importantly, I want to talk about how the shame of the thoughts prevented me from being accurately diagnosed until this year, at age 34, about two decades of thinking I was evil and crazy. I've been on no more than 10 dates in my life. I've never had a girlfriend, and I had to lose my virginity in a Nevada brothel at age 30, which was a positive experience for me. I also checked myself into a psychiatric hospital, which both saved my life and gave me more great stories to not tell in job interviews. Uh, The intrusive thoughts gummed up my metal works, as did the shame surrounding them. I've managed to finish a master's degree, but needed to be accompanied by my brother to make my return flight to defend my thesis as I was afraid of losing my mind. Airlines discourage mid-flight nervous breakdowns. To be fair, my grad school was in a warm climate, so my brother had a very nice vacation slash caretaking assignment. My biggest asset in life is my ability to see hope, even in shit which has led me to pursue treatment and improve. Still, I have a question. Am I always just going to be friends with girls, or can I ever build sexual rapport? I'm 34. Uh, I can have a great philosophical discussion, but I am unable to flirt or ask for what I want. Should I just give it up and bury myself back in the books? This seems like a better question for a neighborhood bar uh, or the waiting room than it is for my therapists. Thank you for the show. Well, Mike, you know, I wrote Michael back and I said, you know, we can always improve our relationships with the opposite sex and or whatever sex we're romantically interested in. And I think the, or actually technically would be gender. Um, I think the best route uh, is by working through our own issues. And then the byproduct of that is that we tend to be more confident and relaxed, which people find attractive. Then, you know, we're also not putting on a mask to, to win someone over. What they see is what they get, which makes a good fit, a long-term good fit, much more likely. And, and it's, I think it's much harder to find long-term compatibility than short-term excitement. And a lot of people hide their authentic selves to avoid rejection, but it, it ultimately dooms us in the long run because your partner will eventually discover your mask. Uh, so in a nutshell, I think it's much more about us showing up with the attitude of, hey, if this works out, great. If not, no big deal. Uh, but to get there takes a lot of... Uh, interpersonal work, as they would say. So thank you for that, Michael. This is an awful moment uh, sent from um, 
No, this is actually a happy moment from a listener. Um, oh, God. Almost broke my furniture. Uh, Kit Kat, is, as she's known on the uh, the message boards, uh, the forum. And uh, very, very uh, faithful listener, good supporter, and um, got to meet her when I was up in the Toronto area and did a group recording. Um, very sweet person. And she just uh, she writes, I just wanted to share this thing with you just because. I have this happy memory, one of the few ones I have with my father's side of the family, of being a kid and lying on my grandparents' bed with my head propped up in my hands, watching TV on this tiny TV they had positioned in the, in the top corner of their bedroom. My grandmother was cooking down the hall, the kind of Middle Eastern food that you can smell in the next house over, and I vividly remember lying there while watching Edward Scissorhands on dinner and a movie for the first time. At some point, my uncle came to watch with me too and teased me about how I hadn't seen this movie before. Eventually, my other uncles joined us too, squished on this bed, and it's just this nice memory I have, and it's kind of always in the back of my head when I'm listening to the podcast. I don't know why that one in particular, since I know I watched it a bunch because I had a weird fascination with cooking shows while never actually cooking as a kid. Ha ha. And I believe it was usually on Friday nights, which is when we would go to my grandparents for dinner and I would put it on while my grandfather watched boxing in the living room. But that one particular uh, time is inexplicably lodged in my brain. Um, That's all. I felt compelled to share your part in a childhood memory of mine for a while and I'm sure to feel embarrassed after I do, but there Uh, there is that. It's nothing dramatic or profound. It's just a calm, carefree memory, which is maybe why I've held on to it. No biggie. Thanks for that anyway. Thank you, Kit Kat. And um, let's see. People apologize sometimes because they'll be like, oh, God, I don't want to make you feel old, but, you know, I was six years old when you were on dinner in a movie, and I'm like, I don't. That's It's not news to me how old I am. (laughs) So uh, I'm just flattered that people remember This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Half Agony. She is uh, bisexual in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I was making out with a friend's brother and he wanted to do more. I didn't want to because I just got disinterested and he kept pushing it and pushing it. He said that I wanted this. I started it and he was right. Um, I don't know if she's saying he thought he was right or she thought he was right, but she writes, um, I started it and he was right, so I just had sex with him. He was a nice guy. I felt like he made a good point and I felt horrible the next day because I was a I was mad I did it, mad I asked for it, and mad at myself for caring so much about something that everyone else seemed to be easy about. I told the friend it happened, and it was awkward, and we didn't talk about it much after that. I ended up sleeping with him again a year later on my terms, and it was awful and emotionless. Every person has the right to initiate and then change their mind. End of story. Um... Been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. My parents are pretty intense. I had a really good childhood, but my parents were in a religious commune when I was born, and it has greatly influenced my life, even though they left when I was four. Their concept of what is truth versus opinion has instilled in me a myriad of feelings of inadequacy and shame. I got in trouble in third grade for drawing slash writing a weird, dirty comic to impress the other children 
who did not like me at all. They asked me to draw it and then turn it into the teacher. When my parents found out, they made me sit in a room with them and listen to them lecture me for five to six hours. This was commonplace. Bad grades, bad words, being too loud, leaving lights on, etc. If we didn't act like 40-year-old men, then we were out of control and needed to listen to my father tell his stories about he realized that God wanted him to help people and be good when he was 18. We had to sit and listen until we would figure out what he wanted from us. I still don't know. He sounds like a fucking narcissist. Um... Any positive experience uh, with your abusers? I love my parents so much. They are funny and twisted and talented. They love us so much, and I feel terrible that I have so many issues with them. Sometimes my father and I can have the most amazing conversations, but mostly I feel dread talking to him because I can never tell what he wants from me or what mood he's in. That always dictates what he seems to want, and he is so mean sometimes. He will say things that stick with me forever, and he doesn't even realize. Boy, I don't know how that equates to a really good childhood that i'm sure there were nice moments and maybe even more nice moments than bad moments but the bad moments that you describe are fucking terrible you don't have to get hit to be abandoned or abused and your the stuff you've shared is classic classic example of that darkest thoughts i very often uh think that i wish i would get a disease that is terminal so i wouldn't have to kill myself you know, my first thought when I read that is wouldn't a better solution be to advocate for yourself and then you wouldn't have to kill. That's how that's how difficult it is for us to advocate for ourselves. And, and I put myself in that category because I hate disappointing other people or confrontation. And for years, suicide made more sense to me than the thought of disappointing other people or confrontation. Um Darkest Secrets. Uh, I did something horrible when I was 14. I was babysitting and I touched the little boy's penis that I was entrusted to watch. I remember thinking I wanted to know if little boys could get erections. I'd never thought about that before and I have never thought about children sexually ever since. I touched him and then he said he didn't like that and I said I was sorry and stopped. I was not aroused and I have no idea what the fuck I was thinking. I don't remember ever seeing them again, but I did but I know I did. I know I felt a hor- uh, like a horrible person since then. I pray that he doesn't remember. His mother died some years later and I pray constantly that somehow she knows how sorry I am. I have never told anyone this. It is inexcusable. To which I would say we all make mistakes especially when we're children and the environment, and I'm not making an excuse for for what you, what you did, but growing up in the invalidating toxic environment that you did, what child wouldn't act out in some way? And that just happened to be the way that you act out. And thank God you only did it once. Forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. Um, you are not a bad person. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Rough rape. Uh, rape-like sex. My most recent ex-boyfriend was the first person I ever enjoyed sex with, and he would pick me up over his shoulder and throw me on my bed or fuck me on the edge of the sink. Um, is there anything better on the edge of the sink? Possibly eating cookies while you're fucking on the edge of a sink. Um, I like when he would hit me and restrain me. He would go down on me until I was convulsing. My biggest fantasy was probably just someone wanting me so unconditionally. Isn't it interesting, too, that 
you you were loved by your parents and your father so conditionally. Um, that makes perfect sense that, that you know, a, a sexual fantasy. Uh, now I'm annoying myself and I'm fucking being Mr. Turn-On Detective. Ugh. And now I'm thinking of all the emails that you guys send This tell me to stop being so hard on myself. <laughs> oh, welcome to the neighborhood that is my head. Uh, continuing, to be so turned on by me that he has an erection almost all the time we are together. I would never even came with anyone before my ex. I love talking about sex with people I feel safe with. It is a nice thing talking about um, sex with safe safe people. It can be very, uh, very cathartic. Um... What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my father that I think he's a narcissistic asshole with a God complex. I just wanted, when I read that sentence, I just wanted to cheer. I just wanted to say, yes, thank God you finally got in touch with what you're feeling inside. Um, I want him to know that he has made me sick. He has made me scared of men, scared about being inadequate in life in every way and terrified that I am not good enough for anyone to love. I can't say that because I know that he didn't do any of it on purpose. Uh, He's just as fucked up as I am, even worse because he can't admit it. He's really just insecure, I think, and he has been taking that out on his wife and children for over 30 years. I also want to say I am sorry to all my ex-boyfriends and friends who have tried to be with me over the years. I should have not gotten involved with anyone, especially my last boyfriend. I knew it wouldn't work, but I was so in love with his love for me that I let him persuade me it would work. He almost made me feel safe sometimes, but then I was completely unwilling to put up with his problems. I don't know if he was just too young for me or if I'm too fucked up or if we just didn't fit well together, but I have hurt him and I really didn't want to. I really wanted to be loved and love him back. I'm so sorry it didn't work. Also, forgive yourself for that. You warned him. You know, on a certain level, you know that you uh, have intimacy struggles. Um, God, you're so hard on yourself. What do you wish for? I wish for peace. I've been in mental uh, ang- angst uh, 24 hours a day for 12 years, maybe more, and I just want some peace. I want to be able to control what I think about and when I think about things. Well, good luck with that, uh, controlling. I mean, I-, I always think of the phrase, you know, you can't control whether or not a bird lands on your head, but you can control whether or not it builds a nest. So don't... Don't flip out if you can't control the thoughts that pop into your head, but maybe try to find some ways to control how long they bounce around in there. Uh, I want to love and be loved by someone I respect. Um, I want to feel less afraid all the time of menial things. I want to be okay with being me. And all those things, I believe, are attainable. Um, How do you feel after writing this stuff down? Like my survey is pathetic and poorly written and that I have nothing to say to help anyone. Um... Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I am just now beginning to examine myself without the, quote, dad glasses on. The more I separate the thought patterns along with medication and therapy, good friends, and trying the best I can to not hide from life, the more I gain confidence. Uh, what I want to say is that I would be dead right now if I hadn't gotten health insurance from the state, uh, finally, and gone to a doctor to get medicine. I would be dead. I am not okay, not nearly where I want to be, but I apparently had just enough hope left buried deep inside of me underneath all the anger and fear to get me to that fucking doctor. On the good days, I know that I'm getting better. It's just so slow that I get discouraged a lot, but it's enough. 
I don't want to die every day anymore. I've whittled it down to about once or twice a week. So just find whatever the fuck it is that has kept you holding on this long and grab the hell out of it. Just trying will give you some inertia. It did for me. Oh, thank you so much for that beautiful, beautiful, honest. I love when people dig deep in the surveys and you see the hope. You feel the hope in them. Oh, I just, just love that. This is uh, an email I got from a guy who um, wants to be called uh, Chase. And he writes, I have a request. I really love the podcast and have found it to be really helpful, but I find one group underrepresented and wonder if maybe you could do a show about them slash us. There are a lot of people whose issues are subclinical, but making a huge impact on their lives. In my own case, I've only ever been officially diagnosed with generalized anxiety and dysthymia. Am I pronouncing that right? But I deal with issues that are a lot more complex, like self-injury that no one ever noticed, anorexic and bulimic behaviors that doctors ignore because I'm not in danger of starving literally to death. would really appreciate to hear the story of someone who, like me, doesn't feel like he or she belongs in support groups or whatever because our problems aren't quite big or bad enough. And I wrote back, Chase, I'm no clinician, but it sounds to me like those issues you think aren't serious are serious indeed. Just because they aren't life-threatening doesn't mean shit. Bad coping mechanisms often escalate and even worse, delay us from finding healthy ways to express our feelings. Fuck what anybody quantifies or labels your issues. You know, it is a shorthand to help navigate things, but is not meant to determine whether or not you have hit a threshold for, you know, being a valid uh, client of a therapist or member of a support group. It's your feelings that matter. And by the way, engaging in anorexic and bulimic behaviors, um, it doesn't matter what your what your weight is it's the behaviors that that matter um you know i didn't lose the house or the wife or the job from my drinking but i was dying on the inside and that's why i went and got help and you know a couple of weeks into recovery i began to hear people people's stories because part of me wanted to leave because i was like you know, I'd, I'd hear somebody's story about how they'd wake up at six in the morning and vomit bile and then they'd be, you know, chugging vodka just to keep their hand from shaking. And I was like, well, that's not my situation. But when they talked about their feelings, it was exactly what I was feeling. And chances are pretty good if I hadn't gotten help, someday I would be that guy throwing up first thing in the morning. And, uh, and then drinking vodka straight out of the bottle. So don't wait for it to spiral out of control. This is Shame and Secret Survey filled out by a guy who calls himself David Curse. He is straight in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I think that when my dad left my mom, my mom then emotionally, quote, married me. This was a lot of pressure and has led to talk, taking on other people's feelings a lot as an adult. I feel responsible for other people's feelings in a way that is not helpful, I think. Um, been emotionally abused. In addition to the above, my dad criticized me extremely harshly over little things as if I was an emotional punching bag. 
any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, at certain points in my adulthood, my parents genuinely seem to be proud of me, attempt to be helpful, and have owned some of their stuff from the past. But because the stuff was so severe and intense at such a young age, it's hard for me to take in their positivity now. I'm deeply conflicted at times and don't know what to do. Uh, darkest thoughts, that I was happy, even ecstatic, when Columbine happened. That I still feel pleased, soothed, and validated on a deep spiritual level when there are mass shootings, especially at schools. Darkest secrets, I pee in my pants regularly as an adult because I can't hold it. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Fucking 750 more women before I die. How does that make you feel? Conflicted. It makes me consider leaving my wife and trying to do it. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell one of my old college professors that she is a bitch and she can fucking kiss my ass. To vent an anti-amends or an amends to myself? Question mark. What, if anything, do you wish for? The philosopher's stone. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, depends on who I share it with. Some people feel similarly, some are frustratingly unempathetic, or they offer intellectual counterpoints and arguments. How do you feel after writing this stuff down? Like it doesn't change anything, and I did this survey really to just procrastinate doing other things. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm with you, exclamation point. Well, thank you for sharing that stuff, David. And... um, And Herbert's giving you a high five by scratching the carpet. Uh, This is an awful moment from uh, a listener named Gloria. And she writes, Many years ago, I was living in Boston, and my father suffered what would be a fatal stroke in New Jersey. I had been scheduled to go on vacation with some of my Boston friends, but immediately changed my plans to be with my family. Unbeknownst to me, my friends decided to drive down from Boston to attend my father's funeral in New York City before leaving on the trip. I saw them at the church right before the service and then looked for them after the funeral procession to the cemetery in New Jersey. Not being able to find them, I assumed they had needed to depart early to make their flights, but I was grateful they had made it to the funeral. Several hours later, my friends sheepishly arrived at my mother's house. They explained that there was another funeral procession leaving from a nearby church, and they had followed the wrong line of cars, ending up at another memorial service somewhere in Long Island. They didn't realize their mistake until they were seated for this other memorial service, and they could not leave without being rude. They told me they couldn't stop laughing, laughing and plated off like they were crying, and an unknown mourner gently patted them on the back saying, it's okay to cry, which only made them laugh harder. Needless to say, this was the funniest thing my family had heard all day, and it made one of the most difficult days in our lives just a little lighter. Ah, that is fantastic. I say it all the time, but a good, awful moment is just like medicine, medicine to my soul. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Procrastination Meister. Love her already. She is uh, pansexual in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, Uh, never been sexually abused, um, and she qualifies, I've had unsafe moments where I was being stalked and groped by a stranger in a public place, but thankfully I reported it and never saw this person again in my life. I would qualify that as sexual abuse, being groped, unwanted groping. Um, You know, uh, 
I think it's important to rem- remember that there is a continuum of sexual abuse and something doesn't have to fit the stereotypical um, version of it, you know, which is penetration or rape or, you know, w- whatever, uh, for it to be sexually abusive. Unwanted sexual um, uh, contact is sexual abuse. Um, ever been physically or emotionally abused? Been emotionally abused. I was the target of bullying throughout my life and it only ended once. Uh, I reached university. I was bullied for being a non-gender conforming teenager, for being ugly, for being geeky and awkward, called a slut despite never having kissed anybody at that point, and so on. And the stupid thing is, I was mostly bullied by other geeks, and they were the ones I kept on wanting to seek approval from. I was also genderqueer, so that didn't help. A lot of my experiences as a child and teenager have all been negative, so it's sometimes hard to figure out when the bullying ends and it's just another people being shitty in general. It's just other people being shitty in general. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I no longer sexually fantasize about my boyfriend. I strongly care for him and we're incredibly compatible on paper, but he's asexual. He's still happy to engage in sex because it pleasures me, but I want to be wanted and to be desired sexually. He's never had a sex drive his entire life, so it's not exactly a possibility. Instead, my fantasies are about an acquaintance of mine. I find him incredibly attractive. Since I don't know him very well, the lack of information continues to feed this intrigue. I feel that he has so much more power and experience compared to me, and I want it for myself. I fantasize about cornering him, having him in chains, dominating him, degrading him, and having him utterly surrender himself, mind, body, and soul to me. I want his strength, and how I can acquire it for myself is to break him. I would never do anything uh, of that, though. I believe in consent and healthy relationships. Maybe it's my subconscious wanting to turn the tables on him because I still keep on seeking validation from this person, despite the fact that he is practically a stranger that plays no role in my life whatsoever. I know that who he is in my head is different from who he actually is, and it frustrates me that I still can't stop thinking about him. I want my thoughts to stop being so creepy. I wish my brain could just desire actual available people in my life, uh, or at least a celebrity far more removed from my social circles. Oh, that what you have just described is so incredibly common, um, such a common way for people to to avoid feeling whatever feelings they're feeling in their in their life. I get into fantasy sometimes where it's like the places that my head goes. Uh, I don't shame myself for it anymore. I just try to steer my my brain back to being present. Um, but it's 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 just annoying. It's annoying. Um, so just know you're not alone in that. Uh, darkest secrets. Uh, I was turned on by women first before I ever got turned on by men. At the age of five, I masturbated regularly. I often thought of Jasmine from that Disney Aladdin film, and I'd mentally strip her down and masturbate to the thought of her bare breasts. Even to this day, I still have a strong preference for brown-skinned Asians with nice breasts, but I guess it's less creepy since I'm Asian myself. Thanks, Disney. Around the same age, I felt up a female kindergarten teacher. She didn't discipline me or say anything about it, though. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I am strongly attracted to older brother figures. My sexual fantasies often involve... uh, My sexual fantasies involve sibling incest. I fantasize about dominating an older brother figure or a male mentor figure. The fantasies are just like what I'd like to do with that acquaintance. Bondage, 
degradation and their surrender to me. The usual. The idea of having that much power over people who have power over me gives me such a sexual high. I'm only interested in degrading men. For women, I would rather have them dominate me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Dear older brother figures I've met throughout my life, I hate you. I want to be you. I want to fuck you. I want to become you. I want to devour you. I can't live without you. I want to be better than you, and I want to stop seeking your validation. I want to stop living vicariously through you because I am too chicken shit to make the drastic changes I need in my life. I want myself to be as important to you as you are to me, but I also want to stop giving a shit about what you think. I just want to be my own damn grown adult, but I still want to fuck you. I would never tell this to them, ever, because I know it makes no sense. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I had less complicated feelings towards the male older brother figures slash mentor figures in my life. I don't have any of this shit with women. I just want to be genuinely good friends with a guy that I respect and admire and not have any feelings get in the way. I wish I had the courage to make the changes I want in my life instead of living vicariously through the lives of male friends I'd like to fuck. I wish I procrastinated less. I wish I spent more time on productive things and getting my shit together in life instead of fantasizing about doing weird shit to people I know. And that's not weird shit. We all have stuff that we think is is weird. Uh, she has not shared any of this stuff with uh, with others. Uh, how do you feel after writing this stuff down? Relieved and lighter. I feel like less of a creep and more like I can just laugh at myself. It also makes me think that I should probably just explore BDSM and get it over with. It makes me think that I should also spend less time trying to suppress these thoughts. I should just accept them and move on with my life. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Your thoughts don't make you a creep. It's the actions you take that could make you creepy. Sometimes you should stop fighting these thoughts so hard and just let them happen. It makes for an interesting internal life. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Tom2370. And... Uh, he writes, uh, and he's in his 60s, he writes, 10 years ago I typed on my computer a long list of the moral slash sexual lapses I have had in my life. I typed it trying to understand why I am the way I am sexually. I wrote of the bisexual things I have done, the adultery, my female cousin feeling me when we slept together as a young teen, the lusting after my sister-in-law, my porn history, my maturation history. Um, all very private personal stuff. I saved it under some weird name and hid it deep in my documents file. Well, one day we were sitting in our living room and my wife was on the computer. She started saying, what? 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 Is this you? She had found it. I started to run out of the house, but stopped, sat down, and told her to ask me anything about it. Oh my, how embarrassing. It's fantastic. This is... Let's see how we are. This is from the... Hell, I'm going to take a little sip of tea. I love drinking tea while I'm doing the show. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Goshi. And he is asexual uh, in his 40s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? He writes, yes, and I reported it. 
My older brother used me as his sex toy when I was around eight years old or so. I really don't remember exactly when it happened, but my benchmark is when I played baseball when I was 10 and how I felt different than all the other kids. It started one day when he asked me if he could kiss me. For some reason, I said, okay. So he took me into the bedroom, closed the door, and brought me to the closet. I still remember vividly how he used both hands, palm face, palms facing in, to separate the hanging clothes to create an area for me to stand. He had me stand in the closet in the space created and held my face in his hands. He then started French kissing me totally gross to think about this. I still remember how disgusting it felt and how gross it tasted. To this day, I cannot stand the sound of people eating or drinking because it reminds me of that moment and hearing the noises of his kissing me. Can't fucking believe I'm writing this. That started um, an ongoing pattern of sexual abuse, often with threats when I tried to refuse. He had a bunch of knives and a twenty-two rifle, which he threatened me with. He was also fucking one of my sisters, and he would tell me what he did to her. One night, I snuck out of my room when I knew he was in hers and heard her whimpering. Oh, that that breaks my heart. And you know, sometimes I, I am like, well, I should edit that out, but I feel like this podcast is one of the few places where we can really get the unvarnished. And I do sometimes edit things out, but I also sometimes leave things in because I feel like um I just feel like it it some of this stuff needs to be said out loud. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't I I don't know. I I second guess myself as you can tell. Um, he's been physically and emotionally abused. My mother was an alcoholic and very much unavailable. Sometimes she was good to me, but others, uh, other times she would berate me for bad behavior. And I just remember the thing she used to say the most often that I was a nothing. Oh my God. My sisters had a click amongst themselves and I always felt isolated, even at home. Never felt part of the family. Uh, not even... Uh, that a family existed. My older brother physically abused me by threatening to break my arm. He would twist it behind my back. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I've always felt sorry for my brother about how he must feel about what he did to me and my sister. He apologized to me when I was 18. I can't imagine the burden he must feel. Fucked up part is that he has a family and children and I can't even keep a pet. I'm so fucked up. I have no relationships. Darkest thoughts, constant thoughts of being fired from work, that people are talking about what a dick I am and that I have absolutely no function in this world. I contribute nothing, a fucking mess. I've planned out elaborate massacres too. Never thought of actually taking action on them, but it feels good to think of hurting people that hurt me sometimes. Then again, deep down I know it's worse for people to stay alive and suffer in this world. Oh, buddy, I just want to send you send you a hug man you sound like you're in a lot of pain um darkest secrets uh convinced my girlfriend to have an abortion when i was 18 i killed that baby uh he doesn't have any sexual fantasies uh what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to just that i don't seem to have the ability to communicate with people i want to be helpful to others and to fit in and be a friend i come across as an asshole though i can't participate in life what, if anything, do you wish for? Cancer. Full body, metastatic cancer, followed by a sweet demise under the care of a hospice team. Lots of pain meds for my last days. I pray for this every day. Goshi, I think we all just want to send you a hug, buddy. 
and encourage you to to go talk to somebody. That's a lot of stuff to hold in, man. That's a lot of stuff to hold in. And no single person could bear the weight of that on their own. So just know you're not alone in what you're feeling. This is an awfulsome moment uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself the queen of self-hatred. And she writes, I live with my mom and she has known that I self-harm for almost a year now. The other day she found the instruments that I used to cut for the first time and didn't say a word. But that night she got drunk, just like she has every single night for as long as I can remember. So at 11 p.m. when I was sleeping, she thought this would be the best time to confront me about it. She was angry that I avoid her and don't talk to her about anything, which is hilarious since every time I try to talk to her while she's sober, she ignores me and stares like a zombie into her Facebook. I can't stand talking to her when she's drunk, even though that's the only time she ever wants to talk to me. So now awake as a result of her screaming, I continue to pretend to be asleep. She claimed she was going to call the cops and have me committed. Funny thing is, I hadn't cut for weeks and was trying to stop, but she was now triggering my need to cut for the first time in weeks. On a side note, I was able to subside my urge to cut and decide to write instead. Of course, she didn't follow through with her threat, and the next day when she was sober, it was like nothing ever happened. That, you should try to cut the ivory off of the elephant in that fucking room. Oh my God, that is, that is, good God. Sending you some love. Check out a support group that will let that be your family. And hopefully your mom will get sober and see what an unavailable mom she's been. Um, This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Jesse, and he writes, It was really hot out, and we were going up and down a bunch of uh, flight of stairs. I could tell that a new acquaintance wasn't feeling well. He was breathing heavily and didn't look too good. When we went back downstairs, he said he wanted to leave, and he was overwhelmed. I told him I hoped he'd feel better and said I understood how he was feeling. It was just a simple, honest statement, but he touched my arm and said, Thank you so much for saying that. It made me so happy to feel connected to this other person. To have helped him out in some way I'm not even entirely sure of. It's moments like these that remind me that reaching out to people, even in small ways, is important and rewarding. I want to frame that, but I'm too lazy to do it. (laughs) But I want to frame that because those are the moments that we have access to every fucking day. And it makes, it may not seem like a big deal to us, but to the person who receives that moment of genuine caring, that... That can make the difference between life and death some days for that person. So, but when we're, you know, we got our face in our phones or like me, my face in my iPad playing Civilization Revolution 2, I miss those moments, you know, I miss them. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself living in a gilded cage. And she writes, Venetian Fest comes to our town every year. I think that's just a fancy word for a carnival. And every year, locals break their routine to gather at the festival. Every year, my daughter and I wait in line like little kids to ride the Tilt-A-Whirl. She knows it's my favorite ride. I think this is the oldest ride at the carnival, but there is something about making it spin around and have the G-forces pasting our heads back that makes me laugh uncontrollably hoping the carny has forgotten how long we've been riding and gives us extra time. 
Um, there's a good chance that Carney is asleep because he's been uh, smoking meth for five days. Uh, I liked you the way uh, how you just shared a beautiful moment and I shit on it with a addict stereotype. Uh, she adds, I hope to ride the tilt-a-whirl until I'm 100 years old. That's a beautiful, that is a beautiful moment. Um, yeah, there, for me, I think the hardest I laugh um, are is on roller coasters. Like the, the minute the roller coaster starts moving, I just start laughing. And man, when it starts climbing... It, I start laughing harder, and I just, I'm like a little kid. I'm like a little kid, and I never think to go do that. You know, we should plan a mental illness happy hour day at at an amusement park and just be ridiculous children. I did that one day with a, a, a group of my friends from my support group. We went trampolining, and it was so much fun. It was so much fun. Um, the other thing that makes me laugh uncontrollably, one of my favorite things in the world, and I don't think I've done it in 15 years, is getting uh, is being pulled behind a boat on an inner tube. And just the anticipation of falling off of it when they turn and you swing around and you know you're hitting the chop of the wake it's it is just nirvana nirvana to me um and then finally i want to read i want to read this happy moment and this um i'm only going to read part of it cuz it's kind of on the long side it's filled out by a woman who calls herself uh sherlock and the first half of it, she's describing how she had been going to college, getting financial aid. Her uh, depression got super bad. She had to drop out. And she was uh, reapplying, appealing, trying to get her financial aid reinstated. But she knew that she was going to have to give a history of her mental struggles and was having intense anxiety about, you know, how she was filling the paperwork out and was she putting too much in it? Was she not putting enough in it? And she had contacted her psychiatrist um, and she writes uh, that he, he said to her, don't be afraid of stigma, fight it. The ignorance, denial and prejudice surrounding mental and addictive disorders kills people. It's in the news almost daily. The simplest way to fight it is to seek services. The next step is is to be open about your own struggles. The next step is to advocate. Do what you can. I started crying again, but because I was so happy. They're the most comforting words I've heard all day. He reminded me that I want to be an advocate for mental health and for understanding mental health, that I want to be open about my struggles. He empowered me in no way that I've ever been empowered before by my disorders. Once the tears were gone, I copied that part of the text onto paper, and I'm going to bring that paper with me when I go to school on Monday and read it whenever I feel down about having a mental disorder. He didn't tell me to be strong. He told me to fight society's prejudices, ignorance, and denial. Everything I want to do anyway. He knows my feelings weren't my fault. He realizes how hard it is to live when you're afraid others will think you're crazy or fucked up. And society confirms it for you daily through media and other means. Simply our language reminds you that crazy and insane are bad stuff. 
He's confirming and validating my feelings while empowering me. I wasn't expecting that kind of response at all for some uh, for some reason. I feel like I accidentally got the best psychiatrist in the state, and I feel so thankful for him and his words. Mm. There is nothing like having, uh, you know, like Erica shared, there is nothing like having that empathy from a mental health professional, a provider. It's, it is so healing. It is so healing and empowering. And um, thank you for sharing that. And I hope if you guys are anybody out there listening, um, I hope you have a little more hope. <laughs> Could I overuse that word more? Um, I hope you have more hope than you did when you when you started listening uh, some 110 minutes ago. Um, I just know that if you're feeling stuck, there there is help out there if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and say, please help me. I don't know how to do this. Um, I do it all the time. And there's so many people that are willing to, to help. But they can't help if they don't know what's going on with you. So... Um, Thanks for listening. Oh, and you're not alone. I almost forgot. Go fuck myself. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.